Good morning. Um, my name is Ryan, and I have the honor and privilege of serving as the college pastor here at Northway. And I just want to welcome you, you who are here worshiping in the room, you who are in our overflow room, and joining us on Facebook Live as well. We're excited to have you here in worship. We're excited to, to sing praises with you and to study God's Word. So, so for me, something uh, that I've realized is that when something is common, it's easy for us to forget its value. It's a truth that I've seen, probably a truth that you've seen as well. And one that comes to my mind is power. You know, this past week we had all those storms and my thought was probably several of you, or at least some of you, had your power knocked out for at least a period of time. And for me, that's always just been one of those things that you kind of forget and take for granted. And then when it's gone, you're like, oh yeah, I really need that. And I'll, I'll do things like I'll just walk in a room and flip on a light switch, even though I know it's dark and the power's out and it's not going to work. Or I'll try to plug in something and it just doesn't work and I find myself frustrated. But it's just one of those things that it's, it's common, it's in my everyday life, but I really don't see its value until it's gone. Uh, another thing that comes to my mind is, is transportation, right? It's something I take for granted all the time. I take, drive to work, drive to, to all these things. But then whenever you lose a car, then you're like, oh yeah, this is important. I can remember my wife and I were down one car because of car issues and we were having to figure that all out and it was just a headache and it's just something that was just so common, but we had forgotten its value because of how common it was. And, and here's the reason, here's why I bring that up, is today is what's known as Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday kicks off Holy Week, and Holy Week ends where we celebrate Easter, celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's something that we celebrate year in and year out, something that here in church we talk about regularly. But what I think happens is because of its commonality, sometimes we undervalue it. Because it's something that we celebrate kind of regularly on a, every single year, it's something that we, we forget its worth and its value. But what happened on Easter week, what we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, that is anything but common. And in fact, what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 is that if Christ has not raised from the grave, if he does not come to life, then our faith is in vain. It's, it's futile, it's meaningless. It, it's, in fact, we are to be pitied if Christ does not raise from the grave. But because Christ has risen from the grave, it means everything. That, that our entire faith, our entire lives, it all hinges on the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And so that's what we're celebrating this week. That's what we celebrate week in and week out here at Northway. And, and as we begin the celebration, we begin it with Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday marks the event of what's called the triumphal entry where Jesus at the last week of his life, he gets on a donkey and he rides into Jerusalem. And as he rides into Jerusalem, he's greeted with a multitude of people, multitude of people praising him, saying, Hosanna, the king has come. It's a giant celebration. And so what I wanna do this morning is I want us to go back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter three. And I want us to look through Genesis chapter three we're going to pull four things that we need to know in Genesis 3, and I want us to pave a path to Palm Sunday, a path to this triumphal entry, and can kind of connect it all together as we trace the thread that's woven throughout all of Scripture. And my hope is that despite the commonality of hearing the gospel, despite the commonality of, of celebrating Easter each, each year, my hope is that we would see its tremendous worth for every single one of us. 
So that's where we're going this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. And uh, it's in the first few pages of your Bible. And um, it's the story of the beginning of mankind. And the verses are also in your YouVersion Bible app, and they'll be on the screens as well. But when we pick up in Genesis chapter 3, like I said, this is the beginning of the story of mankind. That, that God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things. He created living creatures to fill the heavens and the earth. And he created mankind. And everything was as it should be. It was good. Mankind and God walked in, in right relationship together. And God gave uh, Adam, this man that he created, he gave them dominion over the animals. He said, I want you to name them. I want you to cultivate the ground and bring about flourishing. He, he in, in a sense, was God's co-ruler, co-reigner here on earth. And when God created him, he gave him just one command to follow that we find in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he tells Adam, he says, hey, I'm giving you all these things. I'm giving you all these other trees, all these other fruits to eat of. Just do not eat of this one tree. So he gives him this command and he looks at Adam and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And he created Eve and his wife and Eve came alongside them. And they were both unique and set apart in creation. They were unlike anything else that God had created. He created them in his likeness. They bore his very image. And he called them, he says, I want you to reign together to cultivate creation and be fruitful and to multiply. In essence, what he's saying is, I want you to enjoy one another, enjoy and keep the earth, and above all, enjoy your creator, God. And there's literally just one rule. Don't eat from this one tree. Eat from all those, but do not eat from this one tree. And to me, that sounds like a pretty good gig, right? It doesn't sound so bad. But we'll see what happens in Genesis chapter 3 where we pick up in our verses this morning. We'll start in verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat, eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So here in the very beginning, when, when all is good, all is as it should be, there, there's this paradise, this perfect communion and harmony between God and mankind. We're introduced to this snake. And I don't know about you, but when we see the snake, red flags just go off. I, I hate snakes with a burning passion. I claim that it is biblical, as we will see. I can't stand them. And the snake wouldn't even get a chance to talk to me before I'm gone. Like, I, I'm out before it happens. But the snake starts talking to her. And, and he, at the, from the get-go, questions the command, the very word of God. So, did God really say that you couldn't eat of any of these trees? 
And it's a distortion of what God said. It's not really what he said. But he attacks his, his word, and then he does what he does best. He lies. He twists. He deceives. And, and look at what he does. What, what he does and what he's saying is he's questioning the goodness of God. He's questioning God's character. He's essentially saying, hey, die? No, 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 no. You're not gonna die. No, that's not what happens. It's just like any other fruit. The, the problem is God doesn't want you to be like him. See, God's holding out on you. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. You're not gonna die. It's just fruit. And what he's doing is he attacks the very character of God here. And what's, what's so sad is this is all coming from an animal that Adam and Eve were supposed to have dominion over anyways. He has no authority to speak to them in this way and most definitely not to twist God's word like this. And, and what's even more sad to me, the sad irony of it all is that he's offering them something that they already have. He says, if you eat of this fruit, you'll just become like God. And the problem is God already created them in his image. They were already his image bearers. They were created in his likeness already. And so the serpent is offering something that she already has and something that he has no authority to give. But she's deceived by the serpent. She looked at that fruit and said, oh, this is good. This is a delight in my eyes. This is desirable to eat. And so she takes it and she eats it. And then she also gives some to her husband, Adam, and Adam does the same. And here's what their actions are saying. What they're saying is God does not know what is good and what is evil. God does not know what is right and what is wrong. God is holding out on me. His word cannot be trusted. He is not enough for me. And so I've got to decide what is right and what is wrong. I've got to decide what is good and what is evil. And if it's right in my eyes, if it's good and beautiful in my eyes, then I'm going to reach out and I'm going to take of it. And in that moment, what Adam and Eve did is they did what we call sin. They rebelled against God. They rejected his rule and chose self-rule. And this is the nature of every single one of us. This is our nature as well. And that brings us to the first thing we need to know is we need to know our nature. Know your nature. This is the bend of every single man and woman born of Adam. We, we reject God's rule and we embrace self-rule. We want to be the arbiters of our own morality. We want to say what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. And, and this is the language that's used all throughout Scripture. That if you turn the pages of Scripture, you'll keep saying, seeing it was good and right in their eyes, and so they did, or so they took. That's what we see all throughout the pages. It was good and beautiful, and so they took it. And I've heard it said so many times, but it really is so true. If you want to, to see proof of this truth, then spend some time with a toddler. Because when you spend time with a toddler, you will be convinced that this is the nature of man. You don't have to teach a toddler to act in his own self-interest. In our home team, we've got a couple who've, who've got two children, um, the little boy whose name is Deacon, who is three years old, and a little girl named Lottie who is seven months old. And we were talking to their mom, Sarah, our friend, and Sarah was telling us that, that they've been trying to teach Deacon sharing. And so what Deacon will do now is Lottie will have her toys over there, 
And so Deacon will kind of go over there and he'll grab the toy. And, and if Lottie cries or says something, he says, no, no, sharing is good. We need to share. And so he'll take her toy and play with it. Sharing's good. This is what we need to do, Lottie. Sharing's good. But what Sarah was telling us is Lottie's gotten to the point where now she starts to crawl a little bit. And so Lottie will crawl over to Deacon's stack of toys, to his cars and things, and she'll grab his car and like put it in her mouth and stuff. And all of a sudden, Deacon has a change of heart on this whole sharing principle. He runs up there and he says, no, Lottie, no, ma'am, we do not do that. That is mine. And he's like, mommy, why she take my toys? Why is she doing this? And, and what we see is we see his nature coming out, right? He wants to be the one to decide what is right and what is wrong. He wants to say what's good and what's evil. He wants to be the arbiter of his own morality. And if we were honest, we would say that we're a lot more like them than we'd like to admit. That we, we, we have this woven into our DNA to try to be the ones who decide what is right and what is wrong. See, we like the command and say it's good when the command to say, hey, don't lie. When, when someone lies to us, deceives us, we say, hey, don't lie, don't deceive, that is wrong. But for us, you know, if I cheat on a test or cut corners in my job, like it's not the same thing, not a big deal. Or we like the command of, hey, forgive others when it's something that we've done against someone else. Say, oh, I know what I did was wrong, but you need to forgive me. That's what the Bible says, that is true and that is good. But we don't like the command so much when it's someone else who's wronged us and now we're supposed to give forgiveness to them. Then it's, oh, it's a different situation. It's not, it's not what it's talking about. Or maybe some of you parents, you like the command of, hey, children, honor and obey your, your parents. But the command of, hey, children, parents, don't provoke your kids to frustration. You're like, eh, not the same thing, right? See, we very much like to pick and choose and, and be the arbiters of our own morality and define what is right and what is wrong. But the truth is the only standard that matters is God's standard. He is the only one that is just who can decide what is right and what is wrong because it's a reflection of his own character and his standard is perfection. His standard is holiness. And what the Bible teaches us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if God's standard is perfection, we've all fallen short. We've all missed the mark there. That is our nature. And so the question then becomes, okay, what's the consequence? What's the consequence for Adam and for Eve? What's the consequence for us for falling short of God's nature? What's the aftermath? And we'll see that in Genesis 3, 7 through 10. It says this, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read these verses, a question comes up saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't God say that they would die when they ate of the tree? Like, was, was God wrong here? Was the serpent right in saying, oh, no, you're not going to die? No, the, the serpent was not right. God was not wrong here. Death did enter into the equation. 
immediately death entered the equation because immediately there was spiritual and relational death. That before the fall, Adam and Eve and, and God and everything that was created was all as it should be. It was all in harmony. It was all in perfection. And, and for mankind, the presence of God was joy. It was a delight. But following their sin, what do they do? They hide from God. They, they hide because they felt guilt and felt shame for the first time. Before they were naked and unashamed, but now they felt the weight of that shame and they attempted to cover it up with some fig leaves that they made. And, and when he heard the presence of God drawing near, where at once that would have excited him, once that would have brought joy to his heart, now it brought fear and trembling and they hid from God. And, and not only was there was there the spiritual death, but there's relational death. Like we see it in the very first thing when God comes to him and says, hey, what happened here? Adam throws his wife under the bus. He's like, it was the woman that you gave me. It should be. And you see this relational conflict and death. See, death entered into the equation. It was broken. It was not as it should be. And when God explains to them the consequences for their actions, when he spells out the curse in chapter three, what he explains to them is it says, hey, there's gonna be pain in childbirth. There's gonna be conflict in marriage and you are gonna labor and you're gonna toil just so that you can provide for your family. And so where once there was this flourishing and there was harmony between man and between creation and between the creator, now it was fractured. It was, it was broken. That there was a broken relationship between man and man, between man and creation and between man and God as well. It was all fractured and it was broken. What, what Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. That death entered the equation, the payment we receive for our sin is death. And, and there would one day be physical death as well. That it wasn't just spiritual, it wasn't just relational. That God drove them from the garden away from the tree of life and that they would physically break down and one day die as well. And so that brings us to our second thing to know, thing to truth to believe, is we need to know the consequence. We know our nature, we know that it's sinful, it's in rebellion against God, and we know the consequence of that sin is death. Sin always brings death, every time. And it may not be immediate, and at times we don't always see the destruction that it leaves, but our sin brings death. Ultimately, it separates us from a holy God, and, and it brings spiritual death, but it also brings death and destruction in our lives. When we lie and when we cheat, it brings death to trust. When we gossip, it brings death to someone's reputation, to someone's name. When we are hot-tempered, we deliver words of death that cut down other people. See, sin brings death, and ultimately, this sin separates us from the very author and creator of life. And, and for us, it means that we are warranted for God's judgment and to, uh, for us to have any view less than this is to have a small view and an inadequate view of who God is and who his character is. Um, and the question then, or the next part of it is not only does it bring death, but it, our own strength and our own efforts can't undo what had been done. Our efforts can't fix and, and undo the effects of sin. Remember Adam and Eve, when, when they hid themselves, they they got these fig leaves that they pulled from a fig tree and they made a loincloth to cover their shame, cover their nakedness. But when they pulled those leaves off, the leaves would begin to wither. 
And at some point, they would not have sustained them. They would not have covered them. And so God had to intervene. What we see in Genesis 3.21 is, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What uh, Danny Aiken and George Robinson point out is that that for, for them to cover their nakedness, they would have to continually repeat the process. Gathering leaves, sew them together, putting, putting it on, and then when it withers away, go gather leaves, sew them together over and over and over again. Their own efforts weren't enough. And what they would point out is that this is the first remnants of man-made religion. This is man's first attempt to say, hey, I know not all is right between me and God, so I've got to fix it. I've got to do something. I've got to cover this guilt. I've got to cover this shame myself. But man's attempts are in vain. Man cannot fix himself before God. And so God had to intervene. And so God intervened and he took this innocent life of an animal and he covered their sin, their guilt, their shame with the innocent life of another. And so God had to be the one to fix it. And this leads us to our third truth is we must know your inability. Know your inability. Know that we in and of ourselves cannot fix things on our own. And this is, there's been a sense among, among mankind knowing like, hey, not all is right between me and God. And, and we see this when people, when they get, get near to death, oftentimes they'll ask the question, what can I do to be right with God? How can I know I can be in right relationship with God? We, we try, to, try to be good enough. We try to serve enough. We try to be generous enough. We try to attend church enough. But the problem is, is our attempts are all made in vain. Our effort is not enough. We can never good enough our way into right standing with God. We can never serve enough our way into right standing with God. We can never generous enough our way into right standing with God. We can never attend church enough our way into right standing with God. Our efforts are in vain. We can't fix ourselves. And there might be some of you here who you might not say that that's what you believe, that you can fix yourself, but your actions show that that's what you believe. Your mindset, it says that, that I've got to be good for God. I've got to make things right before God. I know I messed up, and so I need to do, do, do to try to make myself right. And what you need to understand is your righteous deeds, they're like filthy rags before God. They are inadequate to save you. That's what Isaiah 64, 6 says, is we've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities are like the wind that takes us away. He says, your righteous deeds, your good works, they're just filthy rags before God. They're insufficient to make you clean before God. They're like withered leaves that have been blown away. And that's the picture here of the garden, that we are dead in our sins and there's nothing that we can do to fix it ourselves. And if this is the end of the story, if the story does not go on, then we are hopeless. But this is not the end of the story. What we see in Genesis chapter three is a promise that we can cling to. And that brings us to our fourth and final thing to know is we must know the promise. Know the promise. In Genesis 3.15, we're gonna see this promise. This is where where God is spelling out the curse to uh, to the serpent and to the man and to the woman. And in this curse, this is what he tells the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the promise here is that the woman is going to have an offspring, a seed, a a descendant, a a baby boy that's going to come and is going to crush the head of the enemy ultimately. 
there's a promised hope and that this is gonna be the thread throughout all of scripture is that there will be a baby boy to come to defeat and crush the head of the enemy. And there's this anticipation that begins to build up. And the very next chapter, in the very beginning of chapter four, we see that Eve has a baby boy. And you're reading the story and you're like, yes, this is it. She's got a baby boy. This is the one who's gonna crush the head of the enemy and you get excited. She even has another baby boy. And you're like, all this hope is right here. But by the end of chapter four, the hope is lost because the older brother kills the younger and they're brought back to a place of despair. And this is the pattern of all of scripture that as you turn the pages of scripture, you see a baby boy born, a generation born, and with him, hope just sits on his shoulders and the anticipation of this is gonna be the one, this is who God promised to come. And yet we see them fail and we see them fall and we see them ultimately give way to death and death seems to as one once again. And then a baby is born and there's anticipation and there's hope and then they fade away. It's over and over and there's all this buildup. Is it going to be this Noah guy who comes? Is it going to be Abraham or Moses or, or David? Are any of these the baby boys? But none of them proved to be him. God all the while though is faithful to his promise. He's faithful to his people. He tells Abraham and says, hey, through your offspring, through your seed, I'm going to bless the entire world. He tells David, he says, David, I'm gonna have someone who's gonna sit on your throne, on the throne forever and ever and ever. The prophets foretell of this anointed king, this anointed Messiah, someone in the lineage of David who's gonna come and rule the earth. And there's all this hope and all this anticipation. But again, it, it rises with the birth, but then it dies with despair. And at some point, there's just this weariness that sets in with mankind. That, this weariness that sets in with the people of Israel of, Will God actually provide what he promised? Will it be as he said it was going to be? Until finally, one day there was a baby boy named Jesus born in Bethlehem. Jesus, we are told, is an offspring of Abraham and he's born in the lineage of David. And this baby boy grows up to be a man and he is perfect and blameless in every way. That he teaches with authority that that they've never seen before. He teaches with, with authority that they've never seen. He, he begins to perform miracles and signs. He starts healing the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He lets the deaf hear. He lets the, the lame dance. And all the while, this buzz starts to build up around the people of Israel and around those who are watching it saying, could this be the baby boy that was promised? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the anointed one? Could this be the seed of Abraham, the seed of Eve? Could this be the one who would come and to rule as king? And finally, it comes to a head and it comes to a pinnacle. And Jesus, at the end of his life, in the last week, he rides into town on a donkey and he's greeted by a multitude. And this is what they're saying in Mark 11, verses nine through 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. They're saying, this is him. Please come save us. Hosanna means save. Save us. The king of David has come. The king of the lineage of David has come. The ruler is here. And the people didn't even fully understand all that he was gonna do. They, they had kind of thought that he would come and he would, he would be some political leader and overthrow the Roman empire and when he did that, come and rule the people of God. But Jesus had bigger and better plans than just that. He was working on something greater. 
And in the very next verses, on this Palm Sunday, when he comes into town, we, we see Jesus make a statement of what he came to do. And there interjects into the narrative some just peculiar story where Jesus, it says he gets hungry. And so he goes to this fig tree. He sees a fig tree that should be in bloom, should be ripe. And he goes to take some fruit and realizes that there's no fruit on this fig tree. And so Jesus does what Jesus does. He curses the fig tree and it withers away and dies. And the disciples are like, what in the world are you doing? Like, why are you mad at this fig tree, Jesus? What's going on here? And what he's doing is he's making a statement. See, the the fig tree, it had the appearance of fruitfulness, but it did not bear fruit. And what it's supposed to do is trigger our minds back to Genesis chapter three and the principle we saw in Genesis three, where where mankind in their own efforts and abilities try to fix things and make things right, but their efforts were fruitless. And so God took an innocent life of an animal to cover their guilt and shame. And what the statement that Jesus is making here is that man's effort is insufficient to make him in right standing before God. And so I have come. The innocent one, the unblemished lamb of God have come to sacrifice myself and take away the sins of the world. And that's exactly what he does. Later in the week, Jesus would be arrested, put some, through some mockery of a trial. He would be sentenced to die a criminal's death. And they would beat him and they would scourge him and they'd place this wooden cross on his back and have him march it up to a hill called Calvary. And when he got up to the hill called Calvary, they nailed him to the cross and they hung him up there. And there on the cross, the unblemished, innocent lamb of God drank the fullness of the cup of the wrath of God. He who knew no sin bore our sins. And when it was all said and done, he said, it is finished. It is done. The debt is paid in full. And there what we see, what started with a tree in a garden called Eden was finished on a tree on a hill called Calvary. Jesus finished it. He paid the debts for our sins. They took his lifeless body and they placed him in a tomb. And just like what Paul said, if this is it, if this is the end of the story, then our faith is futile. We are to be pitied, our faith is in vain. But it seemed that another hope had been born with a baby boy and placed on his shoulders, yet death had overcome him. But we see that death could not overcome him. That God raised him to life in victory on the third day. And with that victory comes hope. It comes hope of resurrection. What Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 15 is that, for as by a man came death, By a man has also come resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Jesus' resurrection defeated death ultimately. He crushed the head of the enemy just as God had promised. And the promise is that anyone who turns and repents of sin, confesses that they are sin, turns to Jesus, they will be saved that they will have life, that their sins will be crucified and judged on the cross of Christ, that his righteousness and perfection will be placed on him, and that just as Jesus promised in John eleven twenty five, though he may die, yet shall he live. That yes, though we might die in this life, we know that we will live with him in eternity forever in God's design as it should be in perfect harmony, just like in the beginning. And so my hope and my prayer for you is that, that you would know that yes, you are a sinner. Know that, 
the weight of your sin is death and know that you can't do anything of your own strength to fix that, but that you would know the promise of God, that you would know and, and believe in who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and that you would have your sins forgiven, that you would be given new life in him. That's my hope and my prayer for you. Now, there, there's probably many of you here who are followers of Jesus. You've walked with him for some time. And, and the temptation when we hear the gospel, even when we celebrate Easter, is to say, yeah, that's great, love that, but been there, done that. Like, what good is the gospel for me today? Like, I've done that, that's great, but, but this, that, that's all there is, right? And, and in a sense, you're right. In a sense that that when you trusted in Jesus, your eternity was immediately secured. That, that ultimately you stand as a child before God and no one or nothing can change that identity before God. It is ultimately and eternally secure. You have life everlasting. However, what we do know is that even in this life, even though our eternity is secured, even though we stand as children before God, we still have the tendency to fall back into our sinful nature, don't we? We have the tendency to, to allow sin to grip us. And the truth still stands, sin brings death. No, it does not cause us ultimate death because we're alive in Christ, but sin still brings death and destruction throughout our lives. And so we, as followers of Jesus, must continue to fight sin. We must fight sin, we must fight for obedience, fight for obedience of God's word. And, and it's not to fight to a place to earn our identity, to earn salvation. It's we fight from a place of identity as God's children. We fight from a place of salvation, but we must fight sin. The question is, how do we fight? We fight through preaching the gospel to ourselves. We, we fight through preaching the gospel of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection to ourselves daily because the gospel is what saves us ultimately and the gospel is what, is what enables us to follow Jesus daily. I love it the way that Pastor Stephen said it a few weeks ago, that the solution to fighting sin is not try harder, do better, work harder. The, the solution to fighting sin is to behold God more. Behold his goodness, behold his majesty, behold his grace, behold the truth of the gospel, and then let that drive you to obedience. In other words, it's we see him as good and more beautiful than anything else this world has to offer. And, and when we see our sinful nature, when we remind ourselves of the gospel, we see our sin, we see the weight of that sin and that it brings death, and we see our inability to fix it, but yet in the same breath, we see that while we were still sinners, while, while we were his enemies, God pursued after us with a relentless love and grace, with a faithfulness, with a promise. It makes that promise that much sweeter. It makes his grace that much sweeter and it stirs our hearts. The natural response is worship and awe. The response is a deep love for him because we will see him as good and as beautiful. And when we are fixated on the beauty of God and have tasted and seen that he is good, the forbidden fruit does not seem as beautiful and appetizing. And, and that's the whole point of this morning. That's what all the four truths kind of build to is that sin comes when we look and we say, hey, that is more beautiful, that is better than God. But what I want for us this morning is to see God as good 
and more beautiful than anything else. My hope and my prayer this Easter season is that as we begin Holy Week and as we celebrate all that comes with it is that we would saturate ourselves with the truth of this gospel, that we would dwell on it, that we would cling to it, that we would see God as good and beautiful and we would cling tightly to him and that we would believe this gospel ultimately for salvation and that we would believe it daily for obedience. The, the choice of Eden lies before us every single day. Will we choose self-rule and choose to do it our way and, and in doing so choose death? Or will we see God as more beautiful and better than anything else and cling tightly to him? I pray that you will see him as beautiful and that you will choose life, that you would do this ultimately for salvation and that you would do this daily for obedience.